what would you pay for the last nuclear shelter ahead of nuclear Armageddon? The answer is I would give every penny I have to get inside that nuclear shelter. Leading economic indicators, coincident economic indicators, etc. Those are signaling a very clear recession. If the Fed is forced to cut rates, it's likely because the economy has deteriorated sharply. What do you think the three biggest downside risks are to the stock market? Right now. Oh, uh, that it doesn't go up. Um, that, that no, uh, but, but but that's actually a, an in-depth answer. You might want to elaborate. No, well, that's actually part of the, that's a, that. That unfortunately is part of the problem, right? So, um, look, I, I, the the risks that I'm concerned about is that we enter into a recession. We start to see unemployment the flows into things like retirement funds begin to reverse more sharply, and you know, for what appears to be no reason whatsoever, we end up in something that looks a little bit like a China situation where money just kind of drips out, right? So it turns into effectively a slow bleed. Um, I think we've gotten used to the idea that, you know, the market has to crash, right? It's directly ahead of us that the market is going to crash. There are unfortunately a lot of similarities between now and late 1999, early 2000, where the market has narrowed significantly. A very few number of extremely profitable companies are leading the charge. People will often point to this and say, well, it's nothing like the dot-com cycle. You know, those were all unprofitable companies operating on a hope and a prayer. We lived through that. We actually just had that experience in 2021 where we had all sorts of crazy stuff move. This feels like it's just a much narrower version of something along those lines where people um, increasingly we're seeing evidence that people are basically saying, oh, I get the joke. I just need to buy technology. Right. That feels much more like the dynamic that occurred in the aftermath of the 1998 crash in Asia where people abandoned all the ideas of, you know, I should be invested in energy, or I should be invested in oil, in uh, metals, or I should be invested in, you know, old economy stocks, as we used to talk about them. Those that gave way to a wholesale rush into technology, and we definitely are seeing elements of that today. And so, you know, the the key risk is candidly that you know, an Nvidia disappoints in a way that's not dissimilar to what we saw with Cisco. I think that's one of the reasons we had such an extraordinary bid for volatility around the NVIDIA event, the, the NVIDIA earnings event, we actually saw more volatility stacked up into the market for the NVIDIA earnings report than we've seen recently for Jerome Powell's speeches, for Fed announcements, for CPI prints, et cetera. Like this was the thing. And fortunately for the market, NVIDIA exceeded expectations. So, you know, a disappointment on that and a change in narrative, I think becomes the thing we should be watching for. How does that or how does passive play into that? Well, passive amplifies everything, right? Because yeah. the traditional way it would work is an active manager. Let's just, you know, let's pretend it's Kathy Wood. This is actually a good example, right? So the ARK Investment ETF owned NVIDIA shares. As the shares of NVIDIA went higher, she made the discretionary decision that it was overpriced, that there were better opportunities to invest elsewhere. And as much criticism as you may lob at somebody like Kathy Wood, like that's a normal human reaction to say, well, the price has risen a lot in the absence of anything else changing. That means my forward expected returns have to be lower. And therefore, I'm going to sell some shares creating liquidity in the market, right? And providing liquidity for those people who want to continue to speculate and push it higher. The problem is Vanguard and BlackRock, the passive investors or State Street, others who play in that game, there is no mechanism for them to make that discretionary choice. 
The only way they'll sell NVIDIA is if you fire them, and then they will sell in proportion to the market capitalization. But otherwise, there's no scenario under which they think the price is too high. And perversely, in fact, as it goes higher in price, the next dollar that comes in buys more of NVIDIA than it does of the rest of the market because it's outperformed the market. And so you get these positive feedback loops that can cause prices to rise in a manner that is, again, similar to the dynamics of 1999, where we decided to throw valuation out the window and focus on metrics like how many eyeballs did you see? Forget how profitable you were, how many eyeballs did you see, right? In the case of NVIDIA, like anyone looking at their results has to say this is one of the most extraordinary reports we've ever seen. We're seeing a company that was already a sizable player in U.S. technology markets and the global semiconductor markets has now become one of the fastest growing companies in history and is expected to continue to grow. But some of the staggering statistics that you know come out is, is that NVIDIA didn't spend any more on sales, general and administration on basically a you know, $10 billion sales jump. It's really extraordinary when you think about that. Did they not have to compensate their sales force, et cetera? I mean, it's, it's really something we've just never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that continues to be the case, I think is ultimately where the bull and bear case rest, right? When we think about something like Apple, which had a similar period of growth from 2007 through 2015 with the growth of the iPhone and then the iPhone 5, that growth was all going directly to consumers, which is a dramatically larger market, right? It's the end market. And that growth was about half as profitable as the NVIDIA growth that is being forecast or it really has actually been realized in the last couple of in, in the last earnings report. And it's expected that that profitability is going to continue going forward, creating just you know numbers that candidly defy the imagination. Yeah, yeah. I did a video earlier today that twenty eight percent of the S and P five hundred gain over the last year, I believe, was just strictly due to Nvidia, just just the price. And people talk about the Mag Seven, but uh, this article on Barron's pointed out that now it's really just the, the Mag Four, right? Because well, Tesla, and, those and others are, are actually going down. Right. I mean, I'm, look, I'm looking at markets today, right? And if I look at the factors that are working, um, I mean, this is just one of these crazy things, right? The momentum factor is up 3% today, um, while the S&P has barely moved, right? It's, it's, you know, again, very, very similar in terms of its underlying construction. If I think about value, value is now down on a year-to-day basis. You know, we're all supposed to be value investors, right? We're supposed to be thoughtful investors, Momentum strategies are up 25% in the first two months of the year, and value is down four. Mm, right. right. The median stock is down something like four to five percent. I mean, this is just this is just an insane component. And by the way, you talk about NVIDIA's impact on the SP 500. Almost more extreme are things like the performance of Supermicro, which it really is just you know, a company that builds things that include NVIDIA chips. Do so, they do so at relatively low margins, and their gains account for, you know, the gain in super micro is the only reason that the Russell doesn't look absolutely awful on a year-to-day basis. Wow. So it's just, it's just this uh like this trickle-down effect. So it, it, it's it's not just uh NVIDIA, it's it's everything tri- that's tri- trickle down or bubble up, however. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure whether I would call it trickle down or whether I'd highlight it as bubble up, but 
I mean, this is this is one of these really extraordinary situations where we just have to ask ourselves candidly, like, what is ultimately being priced in here? And and I can create all sorts of narratives, right? I mean, that's one of the, the specialties that we have as human beings is creating narratives that explain why things behave the way that they behave. Um, in the case of NVIDIA, you know, we're we're somewhat correctly responding to the actual fundamentals, but then also creating a story for why this is going to continue, right? And um, I mean, the easiest story is just that you're you're now actually trapped in something that resembles you know, a, a death cage match where the first person or the first corporation that gets to a truly viable artificial general intelligence theoretically could change the world, right? Um, and if that's the case, like, what would you pay for the last nuclear shelter ahead of nuclear Armageddon, right? The answer is I would give every penny I have to get inside that nuclear shelter because among other things, actually, maybe not pennies, but certainly scrap dollar bills, right? Because we know those are not going to have any real value um, in the world that comes after that, and so what you know, what is the price that is too high? Now, I don't actually believe that. I think that you know what we're experiencing is a bubble that is increasingly facilitated by the dynamics of passive investing, as I highlighted. But the narrative is compelling, right? No, nothing but is the narrative is always more, compelling, Mike. It's always compelling. There, there is always a good story. That is what people get paid for. Yeah. I know I don't know much about AI at all, or at least kind of how it works. I've used it and whatnot, but I've heard that it uh, the GPUs from NVIDIA take quite a bit of energy. So, is there a limit to how much NVIDIA can grow based on how much electricity we have access to right now? So, I think I think the answer is that we don't know. We right, we do think that there are limits around that, both in terms of the density of processors that can ultimately be achieved. Alongside, you know, similar issues, um, you know, around the actual availability of power. But this is the same debate that we've gotten into in Bitcoin and everything else. And the simple, simple reality is, is that digital computation is exploding in its energy demands. Yeah. Really no different than, you know, if you think about it from the context of, well, this is what they eat. Right. And so as human populations exploded the demand for food exploded, right? The demand for human foodstuffs exploded. That's why domesticated animals outnumber wild animals now, you know, roughly nine, you know, I think it's like 95 to five or something like that. Mm. Um, I would expect that we're ultimately going to see something very similar here. Where we have to figure out if we require artificial intelligence, if we actually require these products to allow us to make that next stage of productivity gains and next stage of wealth creation, we'll figure out how to get the power going. And this is, you know, that's a net positive, right? Let's, you know, take the Bitcoin argument that like, oh, we're facilitating the creation of, you know, um, baseload power or uh, opportunistic usage of stranded assets, et cetera, so we can access stuff at a really low cost. This is really no different. It's just saying, let's start investing in baseload, right? Let's figure out the best ways to, to, to increase the quantity of food that is available for our robot overlords. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. So they it, there could be a constraint there, if uh, maybe a temporary constraint. But I think maybe more so what would be the constraint uh, on their price if we go into recession? Because I was going to ask you about your ideas around the yield curve, because right now people are either ignoring 
the curve or just saying that it's dead? Well, I think it's a combination of the two, right? I mean, you have to somewhat ignore it. And um, I, I, again, I think that this is a challenge. I, I encourage people to go to the conference board and take a look at their most recent reports on leading economic indicators. Yeah, right. It's always a great resource, by the way. And so it's the conference board. They put out a monthly report on leading economic indicators, coincident economic indicators, et cetera. Those are signaling a very clear recession, both that we've come through and you know that is ultimately ongoing in terms of the depth of the drawdown in leading economic indicators. And that's even more compelling when you consider that a about three of the 10 leading economic indicators that are used are things like the price behavior of the S&P 500 or credit <laughs> spreads, which are very tight or various other components. Right. And, you know, it, it, it has been through a record contraction without a designation of unemployment. And the reason I would argue that that's happening is because we have a very different environment than we've had for really the past 50 years. You know, the baby boomers are finally making it into retirement, right, or, or at least in size. And so we're seeing a collapse in the number of workers between 55 and 65. It's actually falling for the first time because my generation, Gen X, I think you're the same generation, George. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Gen X generation who nobody even remembers to put on, you know, various polls. Do we even... <laughs> they thing? go right I mean, from the millennials to the boomers. <laughs> exactly. No, well, I mean, that's all that matters, right? And so, you know, we're this population bust, as are our children. So, you know, my children range in age from 19 to 23 years old. And they come through a period, you know, they were all born in a period of relative population bust in which there was also a relatively low level of immigration. And you're seeing that impact all sorts of things. But among the most interesting one is, again, we're seeing a contraction in the 18 to 24 um, uh, working population, you know, a contraction in the um, 55 to 64 working population. And then right in the middle there, you've got the relatively productive. I know that's not the way we normally describe them, but you've got the millennials that are sitting right there in the center and they're making the transition to, you know, I think the technical term is knowing what the hell they're doing in the workforce. Right. right? They've kind of made it past the point that they had too many tattoos and worked too, you know, too many hours or too few hours, perhaps at Starbucks as a barista. And now they're suddenly turning on their entrepreneurial juices and recognizing that, you know, the world may be a slightly different place. But all that's happening at the same time is they're struggling with the unaffordability of housing, the lack of having children, right? Their for the fecundity or the fertile the fertility rates have just absolutely collapsed. As something I think you've probably heard me talk about, you know, is underway, which is what I call the Italianization of America, right? We're we're segmenting into a population that doesn't relocate nearly as frequently where the advantages of staying in the local town where your family is from because you have preferential access to housing or you happen to know people in the community better, and that creates a support network for you um, that allows you to get away with all sorts of stuff that you otherwise might not be able to do had you decided to hop into a Conestoga wagon and make your way across the you know Western Plains. Um, you know, we're suddenly looking at a situation in which it's just safer and more profitable to stay in the same place. And That's interesting. Result, it, it's it, interesting it, you, you say that, Mike, because I live in Colombia, in Medellin. Yep. And that's exactly how people live here. You'll mm -hmm. you'll go down to, you know, one of the strata three places, a neighborhood, and you'll have a family and the, the grandparents live just right across the street. 
and yeah. their cousins live right across that like the whole family lives on the entire block and they wouldn't go anywhere else and it's their form of a financial safety net absolutely correct this is i mean this is what most americans can't fathom about places like europe you know if you look at italy or greece you saw periods of unemployment where um, unemployment rates would hit 20%, right? Or youth unemployment rates would be over 50%. And in many ways, we look at that from an American perspective and say, how, how could that possibly be, right? How could half the people not have jobs? And the answer is, well, that's just the same thing as a stay-at-home wife, right? I mean, half the people in the household don't have jobs, right? right. Why? Because you've created a personal social safety net, a familial safety net that allows people to get away with that type of behavior. And and so, there's pros and there's cons associated with it. Yeah. So you think that the low unemployment rate is due to labor force participation? I think it's a combination of low population growth and labor force participation, right? It's just not a it's just not reasonable to expect 75-year-olds or 80-year-olds to work. Right. Mm-hmm. Although um they might have, you know, we, we would expect to see them take various roles that we would describe as work for other people, right? The easiest one would be, well, just, you know, provide babysitting services for grandchildren so that your, your, um, you know, children or even great grandchildren, uh, baby services, you know, babysitting services so that they can actually, you know, your, your grandchildren can now go out to work, et cetera. Right. Um, we see this across communities that have high degrees of unemployment and traditional measures of instability, the family network steps in, the extended family network steps in as a social safety net. And again, we're just seeing extraordinary evidence that this is the case in the United States. What do you think that means for housing? Well, I think it means a couple of things, right? I mean, if you're going to create a multi-generational household, that house very well may never hit the market. But if it does, it may very well never find a buyer, right? And I'm sure you see this, again, you said Columbia, Maine, and that it's very similar to Italy. You know, the irony is, is if you go to Italy and if you were to try to buy a home, a nicer home in a tourist destination, Tuscany or Rome or Milan or even Naples, you know, you'd likely find that that's extremely expensive. But if you go to the more rural areas of Italy, they've been under depopulation pressures for decades. And as a result, you know, you have abandoned farmhouse properties that they are begging, even in some city areas, right? Some formerly robust cities that have seen this depopulation characteristic. And Maine, by the way, I think has been experiencing depopulation in one form or another since I think it was 1850 or something. Um, It's gone through waves where it's increased and decreased. But Maine was one of the very first places, whereas, you know, the West was one and the American continent was taken over from the Native Americans. You know, you saw people in Maine be like, well, why would I scrabble a you know farming existence out of this rocky soil and, you know, very short growing season when I can go to Nebraska and get wide open fields? Right. Um, you know, you very rapidly found that Maine was an unattractive place from an agricultural standpoint. It then had a turn, you know, a turn due to water resources as a bit of a textile factory. And then, you know, now it's basically tourism, as I understand it. Yeah, I think the key there and and LL Bean boots, but yeah. Yeah, I think the key is when we look at the real estate market, we're always looking at inflows and outflows of population as one of the main drivers. But people also need to realize that if their incomes just aren't keeping up with the cost of living, you'll have the same dynamic play out by people moving in with one another. Yes. So even though the population isn't going down, there's more 
people per square foot. And right. therefore that could increase supply above and beyond demand. Yeah. I mean, that's a, the traditional model of, of an increase in, in um, you know, how members per household has been a function of the number of children, but that's actually changed right in the past 20 years, really since the global financial crisis, we've begun to see a tremendous rise in multi-generational households and it is meaningfully impacting it. Um, the other thing that I think is really important for people to understand is, you know, we talk about, home prices, and we talk about how much a home sold for, we don't pay any attention to the house that will never sell, right? The decrepit abandoned house, you, I'm sure you have one, you know, somewhere in Columbia, Maine that you drive by and you're like, wow, what a shame that that house has been allowed to fall into that disrepair. Well, the reason why that happens is because, you know, your child leaves, you don't have the younger people there, you have an older person who's on a fixed income, who just can't afford to maintain the house or doesn't have the physical capability to maintain the house as the community deteriorates around them. So nobody's there to offer the services and say, hey, I'll do it for you just because. And then the other thing to remember is, is that when you have an area that has lower income, and I'm thinking about you know areas that are formerly agricultural or rural in their construction, if I'm gonna buy windows for my home, windows are sold across the country at roughly the same price in institutions like Home Depot. So if I'm in a poor community, I can't afford to replace the window. Whereas if I'm in a really wealthy community, my only thought is like, wow, how badly am I being screwed by the you know, semi-skilled labor that's coming to make this installation? The window itself ceases to be the issue. Whereas in the rural or exurban community, formerly agriculture or lower income community, the actual hardware itself, the physical window, the new door, the paint, can actually become real barriers to maintaining the housing stock. And that deterioration in turn then means that you, when somebody does want to move somewhere or move into those communities, they have to build new. And perversely, that building new is going to cost just as much in Maine, if not more, because it has fewer, uh, you know, it's less history or less uh, resources in terms of a deep building base, in terms of labor resources, um, meaning that, it actually gets even harder. Right. And so, you know, like this is what you've seen in Italy. This is what you're beginning to see in the United States. And again, there, there can be pros, there can be an improvement in quality of life. And we are seeing some evidence of that for millennials. I will tell you as a, uh, a, a Gen Xer, um, you know, my wife and I are now empty nesters. We've actually sold our home. We're traveling around the country and, and debating where we want to be next. And one of the fun things to do is actually go and look at the homes that have been designed by millennials in terms of their interior design capabilities, et cetera. Man, these guys know how to live. They've got mm. great design tastes. It's a heck of a lot better than our generation had. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I used to uh, be into air, uh, these uh, Airstreams. I don't know yep. if you know what those are. I know. Yeah. The, the trailer. Yeah. Open back in 2016, 17, I had a couple of them and I was uh, remodeling them. And I yep. noticed on eBay, the people that were flipping them, that were remodeling them and flipping them, yep. almost all were kind of millennials. Yes. And, and they, they, they just made them spectacular inside. Uh, really, really impressive. But anyway, taking a step back here, you know, when we talk about the stock market at all-time highs in the United States, people forget that the stock market, correct me if I'm wrong, I think is at all-time highs in the UK, in Germany, in Japan, and all three of these uh, countries are in recession. Absolutely correct. And so it, it, why are those stock markets at all time high? Is it, my point is, is it the same passive dynamic 
at play over there? Or are there different reasons like uh, bad news is good news? You know, they're going to drop rates and therefore let's just buy stocks. Well, I mean, my argument would be that it's largely tied to the dynamics of passive. So if you if, if you think about what happens in the United States, think about a target date fund, right? So a target date fund, which is what people default into when they go into when they get a job and they get a 401k, that's going to automatically put money into these international markets. And just like in the United States, you know, where you look at an index fund, if you're putting your money with that index fund, there is nobody pausing and saying, is it a good valuation? Is it a bad valuation? Should I be buying more of this? Should I be selling some of this, et cetera? None of those conversations happen because it's presumed that everybody else is capable of taking care of them. But the world that we've moved to is one in which all of the money is now coming into passive vehicles. In fact, more than 100% of the net flows are coming into passive vehicles because money is flowing out of the active and discretionary managers. You can argue that's tied to underperformance. And I, by the way, I'm the very first person to accede that passive has outperformed active management. The question is why? And that's where a lot of my work is very, very different from the work of others who think about passive investments. It's not a function of the costs. Actually, the evidence for this is remarkably clear. It's not a function of the costs. It's a function of the flows. So when that money is constantly coming in and buying things in proportion to the market capitalization of the name, this is a very complex topic, a very difficult concept, but I just want to really try to bring it home to your audience. When you think about buying in proportion to market capitalization, you are presuming, you're making an assumption that the liquidity scales with market capitalization. What matters when you're buying or selling something is its liquidity. And what we actually know in academic study and empirical study, one after the other, they all tell us the exact same thing, that liquidity does not scale with market capitalization. Mm. Liquidity scales with volume and the spread between the bid ask that ultimately determines the profitability of market making operations in an individual security. If I'm Citadel Securities, some of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard reference to Citadel Securities and Ken Griffin. This is not the hedge fund. This is the market-making operations that have taken over for the traditional entities that would have existed on the New York Stock Exchange, the physical floor, et cetera. Those have all been replaced with electronic market-making opportunities or uh, market makers. But those market makers, the profitability of the money that they put up to facilitate trading is driven not by market capitalization, but instead volume and how wide that bid ask spread is, right? Because every time you do a trade, you want to capture a portion of that. Right. So, which so that reduces their risk and increases their profit. It reduces their risk and increases their profit. And the more volume is, the less there's a risk that they're going to get trapped with something, right. the easier right. it is for them themselves to, act, to, to engage in activity. Okay, so here's where the problem comes. Now imagine a thousand, you put a thousand dollars into a Vanguard. S&P 500 fund. That means you're going to be buying somewhere in the neighborhood of $75 worth of Microsoft and about 25 cents worth of Delta Airlines. Right yeah. now, if I actually think about the liquidity of those two, so the market capitalization there in that example is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 times difference. But if I look at the liquidity, which is determined by those factors I was talking about before, the volume and effectively the volatility, 
Microsoft is only about five times more liquid than Delta Airlines. Mm. And so perversely, what that means is I'm affecting the price of Microsoft far more than I am the price of Delta Airlines when I buy that index fund that pushes Microsoft higher as long as money is going in. And this is true for NVIDIA or anything else. And it becomes particularly true if you create conditions under which the discretionary traders just start to throw any form of negative reaction out of the window because they simply can't afford to not own those positions. And so to get somebody to sell NVIDIA, it's exactly, you know, you, you were talking about this before. You were saying, you know, people ask, how can I protect myself against the fall in the S&P? Well, the obvious answer is you short the S&P, but that's a terrifying prospect in this market, right? And we've seen this. We've seen the number of shares that are shorted, shorted of the MAG7 has fallen precipitously over the past couple of years. The losses in the short selling community have exploded. And as a result, there's just not that much capital out there because they can even fight against this move. Yeah. And to be clear for the viewers, what Mike is describing there with the lack of liquidity, if uh, if you got a huge market cap, is that's going to drive the price a lot higher, um, but it's going to drive the price a lot lower because there isn't going to be anyone there to buy if you want to sell. Yeah, I, I, I think unfortunately that's you know that that's what I refer to when I say if the flows reverse, then it really becomes a question of who's going to step in to buy, right? Who's the marginal yeah, but buyer? There's no one there because there's no active. Yeah, there's no active. And, and and candidly, you can get to a point where the disconnect is so huge, right? Um, you know, NVIDIA, I think, is a really good example of one where there's still some debate. Is it worth it, right? Is it growing fast enough? Is it, prof is it profitable enough that even on a fundamental basis, I can make a case for it? You overlay an element of fear, right? I can't afford to let this thing get away from me because how do I explain it, right? Think again of a Kathy Wood who's been castigated for selling Nvidia, despite the fact that she is a, you know, uh, an, an investor who's very focused on a future vision sort of thing, right? Um, but when you think about that type of dynamic, it perversely means that there's nobody there to buy on a five percent correction. Because, like, how do you make the argument that Nvidia down five percent is a generational buying opportunity? <laughs> down ten percent or down twenty percent? Right. Or for that matter, down 50%. Does it become a generational buying opportunity down 50%, you know, which would put NVIDIA just in traditional terms? Uh, I'm just looking at the, the PE ratio here. Like, you know, it was be, down 15, 50%. Yeah. So, so on, well, on a forward basis, it's 33, right? So if they deliver the extraordinary results that are now expected by the analyst community for the end of this year, then there'll be actually it's January of 2025 earnings that so it's at 33 times, you know, that hundred percent earnings growth, if that's realized, then it'll be trading at 33 times. When Apple went through a similar process and grew by a similar amount, they ended that time period trading at 13 times. Mm. Right. When Cisco went through something similar, it did Cisco to be fair, did not have this last year and did not experience this extraordinary, I mean, just insane level of profitability that we're seeing out of NVIDIA. But part of the reason why that happened was because the dot-com bubble burst, they suddenly found that they produced far more networking equipment than anyone actually had demand for. And as a result, they took massive write-offs and write-downs and their growth was impaired. And in the case of some competitors that grew even faster than NVIDIA, Right, JDS Uniface grew 17 times 
its sales over the course of the three years from 1998 until 2001. So 1700% growth that far exceeds what we saw with NVIDIA. The irony is, of course, that that surplus of networking equipment meant that JDS Uniphase was swamped with inventory they could not sell except by taking horrific, horrific markdowns. And those horrific markdowns are what actually enabled the finishing of the build-out of the internet and the fantastic growth that we've all relied on. So yeah. I, I look at what's happening with NVIDIA and I'm like, man, the best thing that could happen to answer your question, like how far could this go, is if it actually turns out that this is a bubble and NVIDIA massively overproduces and then everything gets written down by 90% because when you've got a $30,000 GPU, well, what suddenly becomes possible if that drops to 3,000? Right. Right. That starts yeah. to get really interesting, although you still face some of the constraints that you're highlighting with the energy components, et cetera. But these, these things don't really manifest themselves until you're on the other side of this type of phenomenon. Hey guys, I want to invite each and every one of you to join me May 31st through June 2nd in Orlando for Rebel Capitalist Live. This is the annual conference I do, and this year it's going to be absolutely incredible. We're going to have some of your favorites there as speakers, guys like Jeff Snyder, Mike Green, The Real Estate, Kenny McElroy. We're going to have Robert Barnes. They're talking about freedom and liberty, even Rich Cooper is going to be there discussing red pill issues. This event is all about giving you the intel, the insider information you need to not only survive 2024, but thrive. The whole reason I created this event was to give you the tools you need to build the future you deserve for yourself and your family. This is an event you are not going to want to miss. So to get more information, go to rebelcapitalistlive.com. You can see a full list of speakers, speakers we've had in the past. You can see clips from past events. And most importantly, you can get your tickets. <laughs> As we get closer to the event, the tickets go up in price. So you're going to want to get those ASAP at rebelcapitalistlive.com. And we will see you in Orlando, May 31st through June 2nd. When does the music stop? Like I remember my favorite investor is Jim Rogers. And I've had the opportunity to talk to him a couple of times. And I love his ability to make things very simple for people to understand. And we were talking about bubbles. We were talking about buying panic and selling hysteria. And he said, you know, the reason why a bubble fizzles out is just because there's no more buyers. Right. It's pretty simple. You're the last buyer. You're the sucker holding the bag. And if there's no more buyers, the only thing you got left are, are sellers. So when do the buyers run out for not just NVIDIA, but for passive, for an S&P 500 index? I mean, I try to look at it in terms of money. People have to have the money. So, okay, they can take 100% of their income, but we've got negative real wages. Uh, they can borrow, I guess, but that's there's a limit to that as well. So when do we get to that point where there's just no more dollars to put into these funds to make them buy the shares? Well, I, th I think that's part of the challenge, right? Because when you have the performance of something like NVIDIA, perversely, you can actually will the dollars into existence. Banks, if will, I be more willing to Banks will be more willing to lend them into existence. So new dollars are created to go yeah. into that uh, stock. But both for the product, right? If the product becomes a no-brainer, absolutely everybody has to have this. 
then financing is easier to find if you're saying, well, you know what, I'm going to securitize or I'm going to offer this on a secured basis. And the I'll tell you what I'm going to secure this loan by. I'm going to secure this loan by NVIDIA GPUs. Oh, my gosh. That's better than gold, right? You know, like we, I'm collateralized by depreciating semiconductors and graphic processing units. Oh, where do I sign up to lend to you? Come on, yeah, this is okay. fantastic, right? But it does feel like there's such a shortage and there's so much demand that that is incredibly liquid. And again, we're seeing NVIDIA engage in the same shenanigans that JDS Uniface and Cisco engaged in, which is various forms of vendor financing where they're creating entities that are basically designed just to buy NVIDIA chips and figure out what to do with them, whether that's profitable anytime soon seems to be somewhat of a secondary issue. I heard that the military, the U.S. military, was actually buying a lot of these uh, GPUs and then just putting them in storage, knowing that in a year they're going to be obsolete because of technology. But they're doing it like just in case, and they they don't want to be behind be behind China or whoever their competitors are. Have you heard well, anything like that? Yeah, I, I I have heard stories like that. And speaking of operations that don't need to worry about running on profitability, the U.S. Yeah. Army <laughs> right at the top of them, right? Um, yeah. And that said, with full respect for our military, my son's actually at the U.S. Naval Academy. I'm I'm, I'm a big proponent and a big supporter of military and of uh, military service in this country. But the simple reality is, is that if you have entities that are buying and hoarding because they are scared of the possibility that, well, maybe these GPUs are like toilet paper in 2020 and we yeah. just get enough so that we really feel comfortable. Right. Um, well, that's, you know, that you're, you're creating the equivalent of hyperinflation in a small area. Right. So hyperinflation, the examples are, are legion where you see people choose to trade out of dollars and into goods because they're so not, it doesn't have to be dollars just to be clear but you know they they are so focused on the idea of avoiding the deflation that they'll pay any price to get the goods that they can then just stick into storage because well the the paper is going away right the paper is going to be worthless and i i really it feels that way when you actually look at what's happening to nvidia i mean to see this type of growth on a relatively concentrated customer base and even more so a sophisticated customer base, right? I mean, I, like, I've got lots of problems with where NVIDIA is trading because among other things, I'd point out that about 40% of their sales are going to about four players, all of whom are fantastically right. wealthy and sophisticated buyers themselves. And the idea like that Google, Amazon, be, just basically exactly. the other mag seven. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so, so, so the idea that you're going to end up with this, like, you know, you know, monopoly, they can charge whatever they want for this stuff. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's a reasonable long-term hypothesis with one possible exception, which is, you know, we wake up tomorrow, we discover that AGI is here, artificial general intelligence is here, and that artificial general intelligence is then redeployed into making itself even faster. The first person who actually steps in and, and has ownership of that AGI is going to become the world's wealthiest man or, or woman for that matter. Perhaps dog. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's still at the end of the day goes back to energy. That's where my mind just re reverts back to that. But let's talk about uh, rates. What do you think about interest rates? Uh, and then maybe also the Fed's balance sheet. I know we were talking about that before we hit play. Do you think the Fed's balance sheet 
plays into potentially the stock market being at all-time highs with that liquidity component that we were referring to earlier, even if it's just uh, Janet Yellen taking the TGA from 700 down to 200, therefore you got another 500 billion in bank reserves, or I think there's 500 in RRP, maybe that goes into bank reserves. And the argument there, I don't buy it, but the argument would be there's more liquidity to pump up stock prices. Well, I think that can definitely be true, right? So so ironically, I actually put far less emphasis on the Fed's balance sheet than I do on kind of what caused it to get there, right? Or the components that contributed to it. Um, Obviously, the buying of the securities was an important component of it, but far more important, and this is something we I talked about, you know, in a contemporaneous fashion. So in April of 2020, I was highlighting this underlying dynamic that, you know, we lent money freely in the Paycheck Protection Program and told people, you know, we'll pay for you to keep your workers, right? We'll pay for you to stay open so not everybody loses their jobs and then we're all trapped in a cycle of unemployment, et cetera. We basically bought people's jobs with the with the subsidies. Um, that money doesn't go away simply because, and, and it, well, when that money is lent, it theoretically goes away when you repay the loans. But if you then equitize the loans as we did, we basically said, all right, we're going to forgive every PPP as long as at least one person smelled something that looks like a job somewhere along the way. Right. Right. Yep. So when you wipe that out, now you've actually turned it into cash just sloshing around in the economy. It's effectively a, a giant tax refund that was handed out there. And that money is going to circulate until it gets destroyed. Right. It has to get destroyed in one form or another. It can get destroyed through taxes. Right. It can get destroyed through actual credit losses. And I think there's some interesting stuff that's developing there as we look at the overinvestment that may or may not be happening. We certainly are seeing it in commercial real estate. And this would just be like, just think about the dynamic. Imagine you're a wealthy real estate developer, fresh off your tour as president of the United States. You decide that you need to refinance one of your buildings. You go to refinance and the appraisal comes back and says, yeah, I got bad news for you. This building is worth $150 million less than you thought it was worth or the last time we we, we financed it. And you've paid off no debt, right? So the only way that we're going to let you do a commercial real estate loan and maintain a similar level of leverage is by actually saying, you know what, Um, we need to effectively adjust the price lower, right? We need additional security. And therefore the appraisal comes in below what you would need. And in order to close that loan, you then have to show up with cash. Yeah, right. That's actually a way that you're destroying cash. It's not like that cash that you pay to facilitate that refinancing is somehow or another making it out to the next player it's actually literally just being burned, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and just let me let me explain that for people, Mike. What sure. what what we're talking about here, guys, is really it's just are more loans being created on net or are more loans being paid off. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's the only thing you got to look at it. So if you got a hundred million dollar loan, well, they just created a hundred million dollars of additional M two. But uh, if you refi that loan, and now they say, well, we're only going to give you fifty million. Uh, well, now all of a sudden you have to come up with the additional 50, you pay that off and that decreases M2 money supply by $50 million. Right. That's exactly right. So, you know, the, the story of the huge growth in M2 money supply around COVID was tied to companies seeing the crisis emerge 
and immediately responding to that by saying, oh my gosh, we're going to take out as much money as we possibly can from our lines of credit because we lived through this experience in 2008 where lines of credit got pulled. So we're going to act first, right? Before they can tell us we can't have the money, we're going to take the money legally, but we're going to take it. Um, If you then have to use that money that you've taken out to preserve control of the assets, the, the other assets that you own, you own. So, you know, just say, for example, you own your home, you go to refinance that home and the bank says, yeah, we can't let you do that because it's now trading at, you know, 105% of loan to value. Whereas before we were willing to refinance you at 80, 80% of loan to value. So that means that that 200, that 100, that uh, 25%, I'm sorry, it, it's just gone. Right. I mean, literally, it's the exact same thing as if you had to pay taxes, et cetera. People who spend a lot of time talking about this differentiate between the two. The government created money and the private sector created money. You know, what they typically refer to it as um, fiat money or money that is created vertically by the government. And then the horizontal money creation is what's coming out of the banking system. That effectively is just a way of being flexible and expanding it in response to supply and demand. Mm. We just haven't had one of the you know net supply periods in a very very long time. That's really what it means when you see interest rates increase. Is it saying there's less cash available to meet those needs, and a portion of that cash has to go to just preserving your optionality to hold this uh, this piece of real estate. And so I, I think one of the things that's so fascinating is everybody's very focused on this idea that there's all this cash that's out there. And then I look at a number of asset classes and I'm like, wow, they're going to be burning a lot of cash. Right. That's a very interesting angle, Mike. And I, I've never given that any thought. I always just look at the, the balance sheets involved in the mechanics. So as an example, if the Fed's buying from a non-bank through the primary dealer that's going to increase M2, or to your point, if you're drawing up a line of credit, there's more ex- uh, loans being extended by banks, that's going to increase M2. But then I ask myself, okay, is that just an asset swap? Because if you're an individual, a non-bank that has that treasury, uh, it's a cash asset cash equivalent. Mm-hmm. And if they're just replacing that with savings, that savings is most likely going to be very low velocity as well. So yes. even though M2 didn't increase um, or it did increase, did it really matter because that money isn't circulating? Or if the government comes in and let's say the Fed's not even involved and they yep. deficit. So Janet Yellen issues that treasury that is from a non-bank. So she takes that money out of M2, but then she recirculates it back into the economy. So on net M2 is the same, but the economy has an additional asset in the form of a treasury, which you could add increases purchasing power. And I would argue increases velocity because you're taking M2 that's effectively savings, zero velocity, and turning it into checking, which is much higher velocity until eventually that goes back into savings. So, but yeah, it's just I a mean, different way of looking at the same thing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an element of moving across what's called high powered versus lower powered money, right? Um, I, I, I'm fairly certain though that M2 actually does include checking accounts. No, no, it absolutely does. Okay. Yeah, it absolutely does. I'm just saying that, that if they're pulling, if Jenny Yellen is selling a treasury to a non-bank yes. entity, uh, most likely that's coming out of savings, which is M2. So that's going to d- reduce savings, but then it's going to go to the TGA. She's going to spend it right back out into the economy, which is going to bring M2 back up to the level where it started. But the yeah, difference and, and, there and, is that velocities change because you've taken savings yeah. and basically turned it into checking. Yes, I think that's fair. 
I think that's correct. And I, I, again, you know, when you see a government that is running this degree of deficits yeah, yeah. and has accumulated debt to these levels, interest rates perversely actually become fiscal policy. And this is this is clear. You know, I think we have a mutual friend in Warren Mosler, who I know is the the you know, um, many people who are concerned about monetary policy will react to the idea of modern monetary theory, which Warren helped uh, create and facilitate from a trading standpoint. They react to it with horror, right? You can't just print money into existence. That's not how money works. Well, unfortunately, that is exactly how money works. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and what you're complaining about is how the money is being spent. And I think that's really critical. Like when you you brought this up earlier when you talked about energy, if we were to decide to spend government resources quintupling the quantity of electricity that is available in the United States and lowering right. the price on it, just literally writing it off in the same way they did with the PPP loans, right? Like just remember what a PPP loan was. It was a gift to your neighbor, right? It was just, you know, if you happen to be wealthy enough that you're employing and hiring people and those people are going to lose their jobs we're going to send you loans that allow you to continue to service the, the obligation you owe to your employees, right? Oh, and by the way, you know, as long as you do this for a short period of time, you get to keep a large fraction of that yourself, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% or so. Or you could use it to increase your 401k contributions. Uh, you know, these types of dynamics are playing through. And, and candidly, I look at our monetary policy right now, and I know everyone is going to scream at the screen when I say this, but higher interest rates are actually reinforcing a higher inflationary environment. Right? Yeah. We're not building the, the facilities that we need to build. We're not changing our behaviors in a way that actually will solve a lot of these problems. But what we are doing in spades is we're basically saying, you know, oh, well, you know, let's uh, increase the government's fiscal deficit by another two to three percent so that we can hike interest rates by another two to three percent. You're not actually controlling inflation there. That should be fairly straightforward and obvious. You're just giving more people to people who spend less of their incomes, the wealthy as compared to the lower income. But the other thing that is ultimately happening is, is that we're failing to invest in new capacity. Right. Or at least lower than we otherwise would have. And so, you know, we're still like I've still got a screen open to Taiwan and China, et cetera, to monitor how things are going in those countries because we're not yet building it in the United States. We're slowly starting to. But it's going to be a long time in coming. I think that takes us straight into rates and yep. inflation, disinflation, deflation. So do you want to walk us through your view on those two topics that are obviously critical? Sure. So um, rates have historically, the level of rates have historically come close to something like the level of nominal GDP growth. Right. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward. If in order to um, buy an asset that allows me to participate in the economy, you know, I have to spend 3% of my net wealth on it. Um, my question as to whether or not that's a good idea is a question of how much can I get out of that, um, the, you know, that uh, money that I've spent in terms of capacity development. If the answer is it turns out to be really profitable and really positive, then you've simultaneously solved inflation and you've potentially raised economic outcomes for everybody that's involved. Because you're creating but more goods and services. 
What's up? You're creating more goods and services. You're creating more goods and services. But if on the flip side of that, you basically use that money to pay an already expected level of income for older people. Yeah, right. right? And I'm not picking on older people per se, but it's just that who receives that's who receives the lion's share of the benefits. If if you're creating a condition under which you know they're going to receive additional money and they've got nothing to do with it other than spend it. It's not like they need to pay off college tuitions or they have to pay for, you know, uh, childcare for their grandchildren. And by the way, I know that some of you out there actually are in that situation in part because we have a widely bifurcated economy. But the, the simple reality is it's not productive or meaningfully productive to pay old people. There's an argument you can make about it being really productive to make investments in young people, whether that's training or that's uh, general purpose education, all of those things raise the quality of labor that's available in your country and positions you to move up the value added chain. Mm-hmm. In the United States, like I, I would just point out that it's relatively straightforward. We're not moving up the value chain that much. We're actually moving back down the value chain. You and I are here talking about you know, steel and copper and um, you know, the prices of... Um, Electricity, the, not gas. Electricity, like not gas, and some of the things we think of as like the basic accoutrements of life, right? If you're worried about those prices, that means you're not out there self-actualizing with fantastic, you know, avocado toast that you're <laughs> dining in, uh, you know, right on the edge of the Zambezi Falls, right? Like, you, you know, like there, there just is a difference, right? There's a huge difference. And I, I like, and I'm not arguing that we should be doing high-speed rail and everything else, but like. Just do something, for God's sakes, go out and actually try to build something new and change the rules to make it easier for people to do so. If we had an American president that legitimately came out and said, the opportunity for America is not to be great again, but to grow and raise living standards for all Americans. We're going to have to make some hard choices along the way, but we're gonna conduct ourselves in a diligent and honest fashion as we invest to make our country better for our grandchildren than we were before, right? I, I actually think we would all be so much happier than the current world that we inhabit, which is some variant of, well, you know, did you get yours? I feel like I got shortchanged on mine, right? How, how do I fix that? Who, who do I grift? How do I convince people yeah. to let me get rich today as compared to we all grow richer together? So do you think that's an inflationary pressure because more demand, less stuff being produced? Well, I, I think the irony is, is that it's manifesting itself in that Italianization, right? It's meaning that we're having fewer kids because we can't afford them. It means we can't move to the locations that we want to move to to pursue jobs. Therefore, we're making hard choices on the other side, right? We're choosing the relative safety and stability of being part of an extended nuclear family as compared to go West, young man, in a Horace Greeley framework saying, strike out, try to get rich. Give yourself your best opportunity. And oh, by the way, this is the 19th century. We're going to be modern and pragmatic about it. If you screw up, we're going to call this thing personal bankruptcy or even business bankruptcy through limited liability corporations. And you're going to get a chance to do it again. We'll give you a second chance. Right. I mean, what an incredible, like just. But see that, but the the risk taking involves um, borrowing and spending. Where the the, the Italian model is uh, less borrowing, more paying off debt, which means fewer currency units, which means deflationary pressure. Is that that that, that would be the that that would be the argument. The unfortunate reality is, if you keep up the Italian model for too long, 
you know, as Maggie Thatcher put it very well, the problem with socialism is you run out of other people's money. Yeah. Well, then you're forced to just print more of it. Right. And then you have then you have the inflation. And yeah. so I think that's the unfortunate, you know, we are, we are in between Scylla and Charybdis. If we decide to make the hard choices that allow us to make productive outcomes, there will be pain in the form of lower employment. There will be lower corporate profitability because there is less consumption and there's more reduction of the leverage components to it. Um, on the flip side of that, you, you know, if workers are getting paid more, if we recognize that we can't just willy nilly ship all of our intellectual property overseas, um, you know, you're setting up conditions for the labor share to actually grow and improve the harmony that we've experienced. We, we, you know, we had a really unique period in the United States in the aftermath of World War II, where an incredible number of individuals in the US economy had direct experience with each other in the most difficult of conditions, right? And that actually created a level of cohesion that ultimately manifested itself in the reforms of, of civil rights. It manifested itself in a recognition that women should have the opportunity for self-actualization, right? We behaved in a way that was largely helpful for everybody. And now we've kind of, it really does feel like we've lost sight of a lot of that. And we're basically, you know, marching around and pointing at things and putting stickers on them and saying, well, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Nobody else gets to touch that. You know, uh, let's make sure the government doesn't get its grubby hands on those things. And in the meantime, we then turn around and we're like, you know, can't have the government taxing us. We can't. Can you believe that civil servants are getting paid as much as they're paid? And then we wonder why corruption seems like, you know, uh, the, you know, the centerpiece of the American experience at this point where public officials are choosing to enrich themselves in ways that their their predecessors couldn't even have imagined, you know you kind of get what you, you you vote for. Yeah. So it sounds like we're grinding to a halt from the standpoint of the real economy. Uh, but there's a lot of deflationary pressures due to the macro stuff, the demographics, and just the, the, the changing of uh, what people prioritize. Uh, and then there's inflationary pressures from government deficit spending, a whole heck of a lot more, yep. and then deficit spending to consume uh, as opposed to produce. And that deficit that spending takes summary? the form of that deficit spending takes the form of the government borrowing because that borrowing is no longer really available for the individual. All right. And I think that's actually really important to understand. What you're really seeing going on is the government is ultimately saying, we don't really care. We can always come up with the money to pay in our own terms. Therefore, we're going to do all sorts of things that you in the broader economy might look at and be like, well, I, I would definitely classify that as nice to have, not need to have, mm. right? And when you have a lot of nice to have, but not need to have, nobody's really happy, right? I mean, any anyone, I'm sure there's members of your audience that have discovered the underlying phenomenon of once you have everything you want, actually want, you basically start filling your life with things that aren't all that meaningful. And nobody's really happy in that. Your house is cluttered and you're like, why did I buy that? You know, it's like, well, what was I thinking? What 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 made me think that what would really make me happy were round ice cubes in my freezer, right? Um, <laughs> you, you know, but like this is the world we inhabit. We all want you know two inch ice cubes that look fantastic in our in our scotch glasses and round ice cubes that optimize the surface area to melt ratio. Like 
we're basically Romans eating peacock tongues for all intents. <laughs> Mike, tell me about the two year. Where do you think that's going to be in a year? And then please tell me about your product that sure. you have. I believe it's a TUA. Yeah. So TUA is one of the more interesting products that's out there. It is actually one of the very few ways that someone who wants to gain exposure to the directional price move in a two year bond can actually do so. So TUA is a um, five times levered exposure to the U.S. two-year Treasury future contract. It allows you to actually create a level of volatility that's about half that of the U.S. stock market, whereas a two-year bond on its normal basis has so little volatility, like it just doesn't even matter from a, from a trading standpoint, right? Okay. Um, and so that's really an important tool if you think that the Fed is going to start cutting rates. Which it has I do, two yeah. features to it. One, it'll capture the price move. And then the second component is once the yield curve normalizes, and so the front of the curve is less than the two-year, that leverage starts to work in your favor and it turns into a much higher yielding instrument. And so there's some people who are waiting for the yield to get much higher, and there's other people, like myself included, that have positions that are largely betting on the directional move in rates as compared to the carry characteristics of it. When you say the curve is no longer inverted, are you, and that gives you an extra pop, is that does that matter if it's a bull steepener or a bear steepener? I would assume it has to be a bull steepener, right? Because then the uh, yields are going to go down price up. Well, you're going to benefit from a yield standpoint, whether it's a bull steepener or a bear steepener. All you care about is the steepener component. Okay. But from a price behavior standpoint, you're 100% correct. If you have a bear steepener, then ultimately you're going to lose money in the price behavior. You'll make some of it back in terms of yield over time. Okay. Got it. So the ideal would be, uh, yeah, would be yeah, obviously yeah, a bull steepener. Yeah, the ideal is a bull steepener, particularly happening at the front end. Easiest way to think about it is just this is the vehicle you want to be in if the Fed is forced to cut for any reason in the next two years, right? Like yeah. this is just the right place to be. And that's definitely my base case. What What's your uh, view on that, Mike? What do you think the two-year will be in a year? Well, so I think a year is probably the right time to be thinking about that forecast. Ultimately, okay. I think we will actually probably be in the threes, but that's because I have a relatively bearish outlook on the potential for a risk off event, particularly in credit markets, to hit. Um, what I'm really worried about is if I talk to business people in the commercial real estate space or I talk to people in the industrial space, or even I look at something like NVIDIA, which is engaging in large-scale vendor financing, no different than Cisco did in prior generations. Mm -hmm. You know, the real key risk that you face anytime you're engaged in levered lending of any form, uh, shape, or form is that the companies that you're lending to experience adverse economic outcomes, right? It's not so much that interest rates go up. That historically has not been a big risk. The risk has been on the fundamental deterioration, right? The company's making less money because we go into a recession. That makes servicing debt much, much harder, particularly for the smaller companies that tend to make up the high yield space. And candidly, we haven't had the opportunity, or at least we had the opportunity, but we squandered it. For many of these companies, particularly those that are under the private equity umbrellas or other areas to have delevered themselves, the speed with which the interest rates have been hiked have basically put us into a situation where many, many companies simply can't afford to refinance. And again, it's not yeah. the credit spreads, not the stuff that happened in 2008 that matters. 
It's simply the underlying risk-free rate of return. Yeah. So the speed of the hike, uh, ironically, increases the probability uh, that the Fed will have to drop. Yeah, I think the speed of the hike, and then ironically, the longer the Fed delays, the less, you know, what's referred to as prophylactic, right? Moving in advance, taking caution ahead of things. Again, you know, prophylactic in in that context also helps to explain the deterioration in our fertility rates. But, (laughs) you know, we're we're, we're not talking about something that's all that different, actually, in this, this underlying phenomenon, right? If the Fed is forced to cut rates, it's likely because the economy has deteriorated sharply. And the longer they put it off, the closer you get to the point that it doesn't matter. Right. So Mm -hmm. like right now, the debate is like, well, will the Fed cut by 50 basis points or 75 basis points in 2024? And my reaction to that is like, who cares? Yeah. Right. I mean, the companies that I'm looking at are looking at their financing costs going from four and a half to five and a half percent to eight, nine, 10, 11. And in many situations, they just can't afford to do it. Yeah, I always use the example 2000, I think it was seven, uh, when they started cutting rates. Um, And I said, look, just let's assume that they would have started cutting six months prior. You think we would have avoided the GFC? Probably not. I I think it would have been hard because I think the GFC ultimately was more about just fundamental errors in terms of the construction of structured products, right? We made assumptions about the frequency with which people would default on various instruments. And the biggest driver of why that mattered is because we then built lots of large levered structures that required those levels of performance on the fixed income assets. Um, I'm not seeing as much evidence that that's the issue this time around, right? The The people who are buying homes are rarely lying about their financial condition. They are rarely planning on flipping the property rapidly. They're rare, you know, they're really looking for places to live, right? And so perversely, this is a variant of, you know, the Maginot line, right? The last battle is almost never the one that you're facing this time around. No, but it's a banking crisis. So that that was a banking crisis in the money center banks, right? When you allowed Lehman Brothers to fail, basically 50% of the hedge funds in existence suddenly discovered that they didn't have anywhere near as much cash as they thought they had. A sizable fraction of their cash was turned into an unsecured claim against Lehman Brothers. That unsecured claim took several years to pay out. And ultimately, the recoveries were better than people had anticipated. Mm -hmm. But the simple reality was that didn't help you then, right? If I needed to make my mortgage payment and that money didn't come in, or if I was trying to create a business and the money doesn't come in that allows me to make payroll, then none of it really matters, right? The game is, I've missed my window of opportunity. And that I think is the real challenge we face this time around. Are there tons of companies out there that if they don't get much lower rates, really aren't gonna be around to see the next cycle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then can they they get credit if rates are dropping? Because then you would argue that money's tight. Money's tight, it's not loose. And that well, catalyst for the banking crisis, it doesn't have to be residential real estate. It could be commercial, it could be China, it could be Japan, it could be Germany, it could be any of these things because the banking system itself is so interconnected. Yeah, no, I, I think you're hitting on a really critical point, right? I mean, we remember the global financial crisis because it just happened, but the Resolution Trust Corp was created in the aftermath of the 1989 recession you know, predicated on the dramatic increases in interest rates and the inability to distinguish their deposit-taking activities 
for the savings and loan industry, right? They were ultimately placed into a position in which they had to say, okay, um, we're going to have to let some of this stuff fail that has been overbuilt. That was the condo and Northeast uh, inner city uh, housing collapse that occurred around 1990. It even hit out in California as well, although less severe. Um, this time around, I would actually argue that there's just so few homes that are actually available that perversely people are being forced into all sorts of uncomfortable decisions, either spending more than they want to um, or choosing to live with their parents. And if they choose to live with their parents, there's a there's a perverse dynamic that's playing out where people are just saying something along the lines of, well, uh, forget it. I can never buy that house. I'm just going to have to inherit my parents' house. So you know what? I really want a new pair of skinny jeans because that'll make me look really good <laughs> and overcome the objections from the young women in the dance club who are like, wait, you live with your parents? And you can be like, yeah, but I got skinny jeans, right? So <laughs> why do you say that at the beginning, Mike? <laughs> you should start the conversation with the skinny jeans. <laughs> that would be helpful. I'm not sure I fit in them though. So <laughs> Oh, Mike, you're going to be at Rebel Capitals Live, buddy. That's awesome. I, I sure appreciate it. It's going to be a fantastic event. Jeff Snyder is going to be uh, there. Uh, along with I'm a lot looking of other... forward to seeing Jeff. Is he going to shave? I Well, the better question is, is he going to get a haircut? I, well, I, I, they're, they're, they're actually the same thing. Both involve cutting hair. Yeah, but, we'll, um, we'll have to see. I wouldn't hold your breath, but it's uh, going to yeah. be a fantastic event. So uh, I can't wait to see you there. For people who want to find out more about what you do, where can they go? And then where can they go to check out TUA? Uh, so if you want to look up TUA, you want to understand it, check out www.simplify.us. I would encourage you to look across the range of products that we offer. Simplify is an ETF firm that was created in 2020 when the regulatory rules changed and allowed a lot of strategies that have traditionally been reserved for the hedge fund world to be brought into the ETF world. And that's really what's been powering our growth. It's my background. It's a lot of the rest of the team is coming from a similar place. Um, if you want to uh, follow either uh, my, my random ramblings and writings, you can find me on Twitter at at ProfPlum99. I know you've probably got that listed on the screen somewhere. Um, and then I also put out a sub stack called yesigivafig.com. Um, it's in my Twitter profile handle. If you want to take a look there, I'm more than happy to to set up a discounted membership, George, uh, for your subscribers. So, yeah, I appreciate it, Mike. And thanks again for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk. Thank you, George. I appreciate you having me. Hey, guys, I want to invite each and every one of you to join me May 31st through June 2nd in Orlando for Rebel Capitalist Live. This is the annual conference I do. And this year, it's going to be absolutely incredible. We're going to have some of your favorites there as speakers, guys like Jeff Snyder, Mike Green, the Real Estate, Kenny McElroy. We're going to have Robert Barnes. They're talking about freedom and liberty. Even Rich Cooper is going to be there discussing red pill issues. This event is all about giving you the intel, the insider information you need to not only survive 2024, but thrive. The whole reason I created this event was to give you the tools you need to build the future you deserve for yourself and your family. This is an event you are not going to want to miss. So to get more information, go to rebelcapitalistlive.com. You can see a full list of speakers, speakers we've had in the past. You can see clips from past events. And most importantly, 
you can get your tickets. <laughs> As we get closer to the event, the tickets go up in price. So you're going to want to get those ASAP at rebelcapitalslive.com. And we will see you in Orlando, May 31st through June 2nd.